At the very focal point of Christmas is the great I am. This year we are looking at the wonderful revelation of God himself, even using that term I am that I am, Jehovah God, a God who has revealed himself to us personally. And in no greater way did he reveal himself than in coming to this earth to become one of us, to be our Savior. What a great God. And today, I want to look at the I am, the glorious God, or the God of glory. When the Moravian Christians of Europe launched their great missions movement, many of them had to make some major sacrifices. Uh, they had to leave their children in boarding schools across England and, and, and the continent. Well, the Montgomery family uh, reluctantly placed six-year-old James in such an institution, and they went off as foreign missionaries to the West Indies. Unfortunately, when they later perished, James was left with nothing, spent his teenage years drifting from pillar to post, writing poetry, and trying his hand at one thing or another. In his early 20s, he began working for a British newspaper, the Sheffield Iris, and there he found his niche. When his editorials proved uh, very unpopular with the local officials, he was thrown into jail and fined 20 pounds. But when he emerged from the prison, he found himself now a celebrity. And his newly acquired fame was used to promote different issues that were important to him. And the chief issue was the gospel. Even through all that he had been through, the training of his parents, even as a younger child, and I think that's very instructive, were still in him. And he, became, he was devoted to Christ and to the Word of God. As the years passed, he became a respected leader there in Sheffield, and his writings were eagerly read by the citizens. Well, early on Christmas Eve, 1816, James, then now 45, opened his Bible and read the text that we're going to look at today, Luke chapter 2, verse 13 in particular. Pondering the story of the heralding angels, he took his pen and started writing. By the end of the day, his new Christmas poem was being delivered to England and pages of his newspaper and newspapers around the country. It was later set to music and was first sung on Christmas Day, 1821. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. All the glory of God just uh, comes through this wonderful narrative in Luke chapter 2, and uh, here we see the glory of God highlighted. If you'll turn there with me, Luke chapter 2, it was already read to you this morning. One writer says, but chiefly glory, speaking of that, is the possession and characteristic of Jehovah and is given to him, uh, given by him to his people or to anything which is connected with him. In Isaiah 60, verse 7, the Lord promises to glorify the house of his glory. And the meaning is clearly that he will impart to his house 
something of the beauty and majesty which belong to him. Glory is one of the qualities which are distinctive of Jehovah. Well, God's glory primarily uh, refers to his majestic beauty and splendor in who he is as God. And it's that recognition by mankind of this uh, glorious divine reality. It also speaks of the ethical aspects that embraces his holiness, all the perfect attributes. And uh, we know that well-known verse in Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. I'm sorry, um, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So let's begin in chapter 2. We already had it read to us, so I'm going to go through it and be pointing out a couple of key things when it comes to the matter of glory. Let me read the first section. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Unfortunately, we've become so familiar with this story and there's such a commercialization about Christmas that often the real background uh, of what went on here is often missed. Sort of represented uh, by a first grade class was uh, presenting a nativity play shortly before Christmas. When Joseph came to the inn and asked if there was room at the inn, the little boy playing the innkeeper replied, replied you're lucky, we just had a cancellation. Unfortunately, I think there is a, a much too glamorous view of what occurred here. And before we look at this matter of the glory of God, let me just go over some of the important facts here in the early part of the Christmas story. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus took full power in uh, 27 BC. He was part of a coalition of uh, leaders, but uh, took over, and the Civil War ended and conquered. And he became known as the Peaceful Caesar. He ruled from 27 BC to AD 14, so right over all of these events here. And, um, and so it's very interesting that. As you look at history, how God in his sovereign providential works uh, so orchestrates things that you have the, uh, this man who knew nothing of what was going on, but God superintended him uh, sending out this uh, decree about this taxation at just the right time. And so he was an annoying agent of God to bring the parents of Jesus to Bethlehem at just the right time. And it's been noted that the emperor of peace had a little part in bringing the prince of peace 
uh, into Bethlehem. So it's amazing just the sovereignty of our God. And then you have the fact that uh, Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Quinarius was his uh, name. He had a notable career. And uh, Herod the Great, of course, was on the throne in Jerusalem. But uh, Cyrenius was the representative, direct agent of the emperor. He was known for his great administrative skill. And uh, so all of the decree of, all about the decree of, of Caesar was uh, done under the leadership of this man, which again, God's sovereignly working here. And this is noted by the Spirit of God through Luke for us to realize how God had worked at this time. Now, it wasn't necessarily in the uh, regular Roman world that you had uh, to go to your ancestral home to register for taxation. However, it was among the Jews, the custom. And so in Israel, there was the custom of going to the ancestral home. And so that's how it was administrated by the Roman government evidently at that time. Now you notice, uh, um, and that's uh, verse 3, and all went to be taxed, everyone unto his own city. Now Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of uh, Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It says up. Well, he's going south, but just like when you go to Jerusalem, you go up because Jerusalem is at the highest elevation, plus it was a center of worship for the Israelites. Bethlehem, believe it or not, was a higher elevation than was Nazareth. And it was 90 miles, that's a long way to walk or ride a donkey. And uh, so you can imagine, and it's not, believe me, if you look at the topography between Nazareth and Bethlehem, you've got everything from hills to small mountains, you've got it all. And uh, very difficult uh, travel at that time. Bethlehem is seven miles to the south-southwest of Jerusalem. In fact, when you're up on the southern part of Jerusalem, you can look over the Judean hills toward the south, and you can see, of course, Bethlehem's much larger today. It's a modern city. But you can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem. And that's why the sheep for the temple were kept there in Bethlehem close by. So just a number of things. This was a fulfillment of Micah 5.2 that we've quoted often. He was of the house and lineage of David. And uh, of course that beautiful reality as we looked at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He was the son of David through Mary, the bloodline. And he was the son of uh, Joseph who was the heir of the kingdom through Solomon by being given the firstborn right by Joseph. And so he was a son of David. And we have uh, to be taxed with Mary, his espouse wife, being great with child. And we don't know if she had to be registered herself independently or not. Obviously, Joseph was not going to go without her being great with child, but she was obviously along. And then the baby was born. And the baby was born put in swaddling clothes. Now let me just take a moment. We have a lot of glamorous views of the manger. A lot of glamorous views of what the stable was like. 
most likely because all of the other stables that we know of in the Bethlehem era of that day uh, were caves. This was probably a cave. In fact, made a lot of sense. It was more protected. And there are many, many caves in Bethlehem's up on a hill, and all around the hill are caves overlooking the shepherd's fields. I've been in a couple of those caves. I went into a rougher shepherd, shepherd's cave one, once, not real pretty, went into the one that helps you understand what the cave is like, and that's more decorated up. And then, of course, there's the cave that you can't tell that it's a cave, except you have to go down into it because it's underneath the church and the nativity. And, and uh, that's quite a challenge if you've ever been there to go down in there. You lose sort of all the ambiance uh, in it uh, at that point. But uh, I, I did have a good friend who went to uh, Israel. I remember him telling, and some of you may have heard of the wonderful evangelist Bill Rice. That's Bill Rice III's father. Well, he went to Israel and asked to be taken to a working cave. Uh, a working uh, stable in the manger was probably a stone trough there, not a nice wooden manger. Yeah, I'm sorry to break up all those beautiful ideas that you have about this, but uh, it's just like the cross isn't nice like that. Uh, the cross is a symbol that is very, the old rugged cross. But he said he walked in and uh, the animals were in there. He went in there at night. The, the uh, all of the walls were blackened, and I've, I've seen that in those caves. They were blackened, and uh, there was uh, filth on the floors from the animals, understandably so, and there was nothing at all about that that would make it a place for a birth. Now, I am sure that Joseph did his best when he was given part of a stable to have the birth and to, to, not to have the birth, but to be able to take, I'm sure he did his best to clean it out. But my friends, if one place could have been picked as the lowest of all places on planet earth for someone to be born, it would have been that place. And my friends, Jesus Christ is fully identified with every person in the human race. He did not, he, he is the King of Kings and He is the Lord of Lords. He right now reigns in glory. But my friends, He came as a baby, He humbled Himself, and He was placed in a situation that was about as horrible a situation as you would want for the birth of a child. It is the complete humility of our God seen in very clear description here. And so this is why it was such a shock to the shepherds to come and see him there. You did not see babies in mangers. That was not something you would see. And when they found the cave where he was, they found him in swaddling clothes, and even poorer people would take strips of clothing and they would bind up a child to keep his arms and legs straight. That was sort of a tradition of that time for whatever purpose and so he was in swaddling clothes and he was lying in a stone trough in a manger. And they obviously knew that is exactly what the angel said as it says in the narrative here. So I just wanted to give that background because what you see, folks, you've got to understand there's no human glory in that. None. There wasn't a glow over the manger. 
It's not like the medieval pictures that you see. It was two people with a baby, with animals around, and in a very unhealthy situation. And my friends, the Savior, the one that we love, the one that came from this earth, who totally humbled himself and became one of us, went to the lowest of all spots on earth to identify with us. And so in that perspective, let's now move on. Look with me at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And you've heard much about them being the very lambs and sheep that were used for the temple. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now, folks, at that moment when the shepherds were there on, those, on that hillside, when they saw the angels, it wasn't the intrinsic glory of the angels themselves. It was the glory of the Lord. That is very important to understand. They were reflecting the very uh, the, the light and the glory and the fire of the presence of God. They had come from that presence. And as they were first the, the angel that spoke first, and then all of the host as they were there, they were reflecting the Shekinah glory, the, reflecting the glory of the throne through the heavens. And so those shepherds were seeing the glory the splendor, the majesty, the reality of the deity of God. The angels weren't special. Now, to us, they're supernatural. But it wasn't the angels that had the glory. And they would be the first to tell you that. It was God's glory. And who did God give his glory to? To, to be seen to shepherds. Again, the lowest of all occupations that you could find in that area were shepherds. But shepherds of the temple sheep that would be lambs that would die, their blood shed, looking forward to the Messiah who would shed his blood. So all glory, uh, God deserves all glory. And we need to get a hold of this. God deserves all glory because all glory originates with God. All of God's attributes equal his glory. It is the sum effect of grace, truth, goodness, mercy, justice, knowledge, power, eternality, all that he is. Therefore, the glory of the Lord is intrinsic. That is, it is essential to God as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water. You don't make the sun light, it is light. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't make water wet, it is wet. My friends, we don't make God glorious, he is glorious. It's intrinsic to, to who he is. 
First Chronicles 29.11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Thou art exalted as head above all. Oh, we need to get a hold of the weight of this matter of who our God is. The use and significance of kavod in the Old Testament has a fundamental idea uh, in this root seems to be weight heaviness. And hence it is the, in, in its primary use it conveys the idea of some external physical manifestation of dignity, preeminence, or majesty. At least three uses may be distinguished. Number one, it defines the wealth or other material possessions which give honor or distinction to a person. Number two, the majesty, dignity, splendor, or honor of a person. Three, most important of all, it describes the form in which Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, reveals himself or is the sign and manifestation of his presence. It's the full dignity and weight of the enormity of the deity of Jesus Christ. Let me just say, what the shepherds saw reflecting off of the angels was just a little bit of his glory. If they had seen his glory in its fullness, we would have had a bunch of dead shepherds and we would not have had anybody to tell the story. God always deflects it so that we can see it in the sense spiritually and in this sense they saw it physically. Um, but uh, the splendor of God is, is beyond description. And my friends, you know what the problem of mankind is, as Romans 1 says? Mankind glorifies the creature more than the creator. Humanism, secularism. Today is a day of actual pagan observance. Last night was. This coming, that's this last week was. And my friends, there's much of that. And uh, all of us are prone without coming to know Christ as Savior to be worshiping ourselves and think of our goodness. My friends, anything good about your life or anything that deserves glory came from the hand of God. All glory, all glory, all that which deserves glory comes from God. God is fully glorious. Isaiah 2.10, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Everything about God is glorious. I don't know about you, but I've had moments just out in nature, a beautiful sunset that just took your breath away. Standing up on top of a high mountain, looking over on a clear day over ranges of mountains that just cannot begin to describe. And God in just a moment created all of that. I tell you what's more glorious when somebody stands here or some other place and gives a testimony of how they were saved and their life has been changed. There's glory there. And many more things as we see God intervene in the affairs of mankind. And we get a little taste of the glory of God. But that which is really his glory is who he is. And so God's very presence is glorious. 
The people of God experienced the glory of God. You remember the cloud that was over the tabernacle and guided the pillar by night, and the, pill, uh, the cloudy pillar by day, which was his glory, and then the a manifestation of his glory, the pillar of fire at night, and how God led them. You had the Shekinah glory that would come out of the tabernacle and then uh, the temple. Uh, and then when Jesus uh, was resurrected and ascended and was in full glory himself, he sent the Spirit of God into every believer at that point at Pentecost. And what did he do to give a symbol that, that God had come into the lives of believers at that point there at Pentecost? Tongues of fire. What did that represent? The glory of God. This is God doing something. Often when you look throughout Scripture, when you see God, you see brightness, you see light, you see fire. You look at Revelation, you see uh, God being on fire. You look at the book of Daniel, you look at the book of Ezekiel, you see the glory of God represented in physical terms in this manifestation of light. But His glory is a manifestation, as I've already said, of His attributes. But let me just remind each one of us, if you are a believer here this morning, you have the glory of God in you. It takes our breath away to think about what it would be like when Isaiah saw the uh, Lord high and lifted up. He was just absolutely uh, broken when he saw it. He, he fell on his face. But my friends, that very same person is in you and me. We are sealed and indwelt. And when we're right with God, we can experience the spiritual fire of God. And folks, when we, when we look at there here in this wonderful pa passage, uh, the fact that they, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, uh, we can be just thrilled to think about the fact that we have that in us. And, uh, and it is very important, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, that's exactly what happens when you are in the glory, know the glory of God. We should be living with constant praise. And that leads me to the second point. God expects to receive glory because without that, we will worship ourselves. Without that, we will get caught in worshiping the evil one who uses this, this organized world system to keep us away from God. And so God's people must acknowledge God's greatness. Glory is ascribed to God. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest. Now, the glory of God was seen, and here to these shepherds and to all of us is clearly stated that we are to give, ascribe glory to God. A verse that is somewhat common, but think about it with me, especially in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every believer here, God created you. 
every believer here, God saved you through the coming of Christ and the awful suffering on the cross, giving himself completely for us. Therefore, everything we do in our body, everything we do in our spirit must be done in light of the glory of God and bringing glory to him. My friends, that would change believers' lives if we believed it. If the true message of Christmas was received down in our hearts as it ought to be, we would be transformed people. But oftentimes, we just don't let God bring us to that perspective. I love the story, I've given it a couple of times, about Franz Joseph Haydn. In 1808, that great oratorial creation, we've done that, uh, it's one of the great um, biblical oratorials that have been done. It was taking place in Vienna. And the composer himself came for that occasion, and the place just was ecstatic to have him there. He was old and feeble. He was brought into the hall in a wheelchair. And it was just electrifying. And as the orchestra and chorus burst forth, with full power into the passage. If you've heard this, it's amazing. And there was light. A crescendo of applause uh, broke out. Moved by this response, the elderly musician struggled to his feet. Summoning all his strength, he raised his trembling arms upward, crying, No, no, not from me, but from thence, from heaven above, comes all. Although he fell back exhausted in his chair and had to be carried from the hall, the old master made his point in a dramatic and unforgettable manner. All glory to God. Friend, if you've taken any glory for anything you've done and not given glory to God about it, that's a sin against God. Napoleon Bonaparte learned that as he was a man filled with his own glory, trying to have an empire. And he said near the end of his life, glory is fleeting. Obscurity is forever. He learned that. And my friends, it's tragic when men and women take glory to themselves. God hates pride. You may have done great things. You may be well known. And I'm telling you, in the light of eternity, it'll absolutely mean nothing. It'll burn away in the presence of the glory of God. All praise must be given to him. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. I also love the story of uh, Morse, the inventor of the telegraph. And a pastor asked this question Professor Morris, when you were making your experiments yonder in the room there in the university, did you ever come to a place where you didn't know what to do next? Oh, he said more than once. And at what times did you do next? I may, I may answer you in confidence, sir, said the professor, but it is a matter of which the public knows nothing. I prayed for more light. And the light generally came? Yes, and I may tell you, that when flattering honors come to me from America and Europe on account of the invention which bears my name, I never felt I deserved them. I had made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone and was pleased to reveal it to me. In view of these facts, the pastor said it's not uh, surprising that 
the very first message. You know what that was of the Morse code? What hath God wrought? Now that is really the attitude that we need to have. That's exactly what the angels who were reflecting the glory of God, they made it very clear, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The answer to every situation on earth today is to glorify God. And especially God's people, we should live for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all. Do all for the glory of God. It's the ultimate purpose. We should be able to be living in worship to our God. Praise ought to be on our lips. But like one church uh, had a sign on it that said, do not worship here, clothes for cleaning. <laughs> and I'm afraid many Christians can't worship in their, very, in their very hearts because they just aren't in a place in which their lives are where they ought to be. So finally, number three, God displays his glory. We read in verse 15, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Note this. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. The shepherd's faith had been substantiated. Back up in verse 12, he said, they said, you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That was impossible. No baby would be lying in a manger. Well, they found a baby in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. By the way, if someone put a baby in swaddling clothes, it means that they had great care for that baby and that, that this, was not, uh, this was truly a, a loving event. And so when they saw it and they sensed the presence of God in that place and had, had the, the echo of what the shepherds have said in their hearts, they wanted to do what? Glorify God. They wanted people to know. Well, how do we glorify God? It's displayed in the church. In this era, in this age, God has... His body, the local church, is the place where the glory of God should first of all be seen. Ephesians 3.21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Unto where? In the church. We're the body of Christ. Jesus is glorified today. Folks, if we could see just a glimpse, and we can by looking at Scripture, we couldn't handle it in our condition today, but if we could and see a glimpse of Jesus today and, it would, and, and we got a hold of it, we would understand that when we're called the body of Christ, that's an amazing fact because the body of Christ should be showing forth the ascended, glorified Christ uh, spiritual glory 
in its body life and everything that we do in what we say and how we touch a community in our families, everything should show forth the glory of God. And what an opportunity. God's glorious presence should be seen in the local church. God's presence should be seen through revival. Duncan Campbell, one of the last major revivals in the Western world on the Isle of Lewis off of Scotland, said, how is it that while we make such great claims for the power of the gospel, we see so little of the supernatural in operation? If Christianity is a religion not of aspiration only, but preeminently of fulfillment, how is it that revival tarries? Is there any reason why the church today cannot everywhere equal the church at Pentecost? I feel that this is a question that we ought to face with an open mind and an honest heart. What did the early church have that we do not possess today? Nothing but the Holy Spirit. Nothing but the power of God. Here I would suggest that one of the main secrets of success in the early church lay in the fact that the early believers believed in unction from on high and not entertainment from men. Folks, the presence of God is what we need. This world desperately needs to know that the same God that lit up those angels is working today. His power and his presence is with us till the end of the age. He deserves for his church to be glorious. Baxter said, why should we not have a perpetual Pentecost? The Holy Ghost is not withdrawn, but there are few men who are empty enough of self to go all lengths with the Holy Ghost without diverging into self or self-fanaticism. Oh, how we need, and that's why even as we have the prayer meeting coming up, how crucial it is as we humbly come before God and ask Him to work in our midst. And finally, it is displayed through us as individual believers. I love that passage there in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where in the face of Jesus Christ but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Yes, Moses' face shined and he had to put a veil over it and uh, you had other times such as the transfiguration where the glory of God came upon men. But we're talking about the spiritual reality. And as the church should show forth the glory spiritually of the Lord, so should we as individuals in our very countenance, in our words, in our touch, everything about us, we should show forth the glory of God. I love the story of Dr. Charles Weigel. You may remember Robert Regal. He knew him well who is probably best known for his song, No One Ever Cared for Me Like Jesus. I was once preaching at a Bible conference in Pasadena, California. He spent one afternoon visiting some of the famous rose gardens in the city. When he returned to the Bible conference later that day, a number of people inquired as to how he had enjoyed the lovely gardens. Mystified by their knowledge of his leisure time, he, in, he inquired how they knew where he'd been. The response was, you have brought the fragrance of the flowers with us. And we can bring the fragrance of being with Jesus and the reality of the Spirit of God in us. If we're meeting with Him, it ought to be so obvious. The glory of God 
isn't necessarily always in that powerful light. It is in the spiritual quietness of God and trusting him and the reality of his person. And so as we look at the Christmas story, glory's everywhere. It's because God is glorious. The I am. Where did uh, Moses first see him? In the burning bush. My friends, if you saw Jesus today, you would be overwhelmed at the light and the fire of the presence of our Savior. And my friends, that's a reality that needs to get a hold of us. And in this day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in lives of surrendered believers, this world can still see the light. This story in Luke 2 should continue on. We are better messengers than the angels. We are God's designated ambassadors. And may we, because we worship the glorious God, show forth the glory of our God. Let's bow for prayer.